0: It was a beautiful day on Cape Breton in Nova Scotia when my wife, Tricia and I were on vacation. And I'd convinced her, as I am oft one to do, that we should go to a local museum. So I convinced her that we would go to the Miner's Museum in Glace Bay. Well, after a very long, very windy drive, we pulled up to a kind of nondescript building, this one-story, sort of hexagonal building With a very very empty parking lot and i wondered if i'd made a mistake so we walked inside i'm hopeful still hoping we walked inside and it was not well lit there was no one to be seen except two very bored teenagers sitting behind the the welcome desk and this big sign that said tours twenty dollars all we could see was one room of exhibits the bathroom and a little tiny shop. So we were just about to turn around thinking, "Okay, this wasn't such a good idea. We really don't need to be paying $20 to tour a room. Maybe there's a movie in there in the corner, maybe. So I heard this older voice from behind speaking to the teenagers. And I looked up, and there was a gentleman telling them quite confidently he would be right back to lead the tour into the mine in half an hour. So I followed him outside, Trisha followed me, and we wandered out there, and the next thing I know, I'm sitting on a bench <laughs> with a group of retired miners. For 25 minutes, I sat with these men, learning the 250-year history of coal mining in Nova Scotia, listening to their heartbreaking stories of survival in the mines, Every one of them had fathers and brothers and uncles and buddies who had worked the mines. They told me with pride about their work and about the corruption of the industry that managed it. They told me about the companies that owned everything in town, the houses, the utilities, the shops, and everything underground. They told me about these companies that squeezed every last possible dollar out of indentured human servitude. The men had all witnessed, every one of them, numbers of horrible accidents that had killed or maimed these beloved friends, family, and local villagers. By early this century, the mines had closed and all of them had lost their jobs, the economy was depressed, they had no assets in their company-owned houses, and so today they live on very small federal pensions. And they supplement those pensions by leading tours at the Mining Museum and by singing in this wonderful group called Men of the Deep. So we laughed, we talked, we talked about God and God's mercy. I cried, and I was in awe of their resilience. I was also wrapped in love on that, be- on that bench that day. So you can bet that we bought those $20 tickets We put on the required safety helmets, a sort of Batman-like black cape that everyone had to wear, and we followed Jack down into the mine. We walked down a very gentle slope. The roof line was at about 4 feet and 8 inches, so it wasn't too much of a bend. And there used to be a rail line that ran down this long channel way out under the ocean. It went two miles out with trolleys on it that the men rode to the mines and the coal returned to the surface. So it didn't seem so bad at first. We were perhaps, you know, 300 yards down this long tunnel. Um, We weren't that sore yet. It was a tour, after all. They weren't going to do anything to us, I assumed. Um, So we kept ducking, and we began to look Hopeful and think this isn't so scary We turned left and we turned into a narrower tunnel a space that became smaller and tighter darker and On each side there were bays and in each of those bays we were told two miners worked together Working in pairs with iron tools that they had to pay for out of their meager salaries and suddenly the lights went out I have never been in such darkness. And after what seemed like forever, Jack lit his flashlight and he began to speak, his voice calming the palpable fear in our group. He explained that the only light the miners would have had well into the early 20th century were their oil lanterns filled with oil that they had to buy out of the meager salaries that they earned. As a result, they learned to walk in these dark tunnels, trusting their hands, trusting the sounds of the other workers, finding their way to their niche, their place to dig. So he used this description to engage us in the moment of his own life. He used the flashlight to guide us around another corner and he shined his flashlight up and there was a wooden door and a little wooden stool and he told us about nine-year-old boys who used to sit on that wooden stool as they let carts pulled by ponies with coal through There were ponies in that mine that lived their whole lives below ground They were tended by nine-year-old boys And then he showed us the canaries, the canaries in the iron cages that literally are on sticks and were used to test the methane gas. So after about 45 minutes of crouching in the dark, my back was aching. My feet were cold, and I was wrestling with claustrophobia. How did these men survive this? How did they work six days a week, 12-hour shifts, in these excruciating conditions for 30, 40 years. And Jack suddenly yelled over these other visitors, hey, church ladies, (laughs) that's us, you're gonna like what you see next. So he shouted, we turned another corner, and there before our eyes was a garden. Courageously, resisting the despair of their lives, Miners had found a way to bring life and light into this darkness. Every day a few men would pack seeds in their pockets and soil in their lunchboxes and they'd ride that 30-minute train two miles under the ocean and they would tend a garden. They would grow potatoes and carrots and flowers. The miners understood that planting a garden feeds people in body and soul. They were missionaries of hope. And right there, at that moment, the words that Ben just read to us from Isaiah came to me. I will give you as a light to the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So today we honor another agricultural missionary, a saint who himself endured extreme darkness carried the light of the gospel wherever he went, Hiram Hisanora Kano. Hiram was born in Tokyo in 1889. He immigrated with his family to the United States, and he earned a master's degree in agriculture at the University of Nebraska. He was recruited by the area bishop at the time in western Nebraska to evangelize to Japanese-American residents in that region. Before he was ordained a priest, he says, according to the history books, that Hiram Hirahisanora Kano had prepared 250 people for baptism and over 50 people for confirmation. That's a lot of new Christians. A lot of new, newly reaffirmed Christians. But then, on the morning of December 7th in 1941, Father Cano had just celebrated the Eucharist at his Episcopal Church of Our Savior in North Platte, Nebraska, 180 miles from his wife and children, in their Scotts Bluff home. He was arrested by local police and not allowed to notify his family. He heard the terrible news of the bombing of Pearl Harbor and the declaration of war on Japan on the police car radio as they were taking him in. And because his family in Japan had connections with the Japanese government and because he was so personally influential with the Japanese Americans as both a minister and a teacher of agriculture, he was rated a Class A suspect, the most potentially dangerous of Japanese Americans. He was the only Japanese person in the 5,000 living in Nebraska, Colorado and Wyoming to receive that rating and to be interned at all. One local newspaper said, alien pastor arrested by FBI admits writing to Tokyo. For two long years, in four states, Father Hano was held in internment camps under miserable conditions, where he devoted himself to teaching fellow prisoners agriculture, English, and preaching the gospel. After his release, he was sent to seminary because it was considered not safe to return home. But finally, he was able to return to his ministry in Nebraska in 1946. And as soon as it was legally possible, he and his wife became American citizens and devoted themselves to teaching people to pass the citizenship exam. To this day, almost 100% of the Japanese Americans living in Nebraska passed the citizenship exam and are US citizens. Forty years after World War II, when the U.S. government finally acknowledged that Japanese-Americans had been wronged by the internments and they offered to pay reparations, Father Kano said to his bishop, I don't want the money. God just used that as another opportunity for me to preach the gospel. Go therefore and make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. What seeds are you carrying in your pockets? Go, plant hope. Go, carry light. Go, love others. And go, spread the gospel.